You're listening to Podcasting Made Simple, where we deliver weekly masterclass episodes that help podcast hosts and podcast guests elevate their podcasting game. I am your host, Alex Sanfilippo. Today's episode features the audio replay of the keynote presentation from the last PodPros quarterly event. To learn more about the keynote speaker that you're about to hear from, along with other helpful resources, including the video version of this episode, please visit podpros.com slash 171. And now please enjoy today's keynote episode. I don't normally wear a tie, but for this event, I figured it's very opportune. I'll wear a tie. But how to skip the line to succeed in podcasting, one of my favorite topics. I did not want to be a podcaster. I don't really like talking to people, and I really like to just sit in my house and read and write all day. That's what I like to do. And But then... I had the opportunity to do a podcast. Someone said, hey, we'll produce it for you. And I figured, okay, this is a good chance for me to call up all of my favorite people and I have an excuse. You you should talk to me so you could be on my podcast. Uh, You have a new book out, no problem. Be on my podcast and we'll promote your book. Oh, you have a new investment that you're working on. No problem, come on my podcast, we'll talk. So it was a great way to call people that I would normally never call and get them to uh, and get a chance to talk to them and ask all the questions. They'd be a captive audience. They'd have to answer every question I had. So I, I, it's been an amazing experience, but I'm going to kind of rewind a little bit and start off with how did this all happen? And some of you might know a little bit of, you know, what I've talked about before, you know, how I got started writing, how I uh, became an entrepreneur and so on. And there was one time, the very first time I built a company was in the mid nineties. And I was doing a website for HBO. My, I, I will argue I did the very first podcast actually. So this was 1996 and HBO.com didn't even exist. I convinced HBO, the the television network, to buy HBO.com, the URL. They had homeboxoffice.com, but there was a medical supplies company in Atlanta, Georgia called HBO and Company, and they owned HBO.com. So in 1995, HBO spent, I'll give you a chance to guess how much money, think about it for a few seconds, how much would they spend on HBO.com in 1995? So they spent $250,000 even then for the URL HBO.com, but it was worth it, of course. And uh, I, was, I, I was running HBO's website. I convinced HBO to make a website. And then I wanted to convince HBO to make web shows the way they made TV shows. I mean, the reason I wanted to work at HBO was because I just loved their TV shows. And at that time, I think it was, there was the Larry Sanders show. There was a show called Dream On that was uh, very HBO-like. There were a couple other interesting shows. And I just loved watching HBO. So I applied to work there. And for whatever reason, they accepted me. And my title was Junior Analyst Programmer. I was the lowest of the low on the totem pole. And I think it was my boss's boss's Bosses, 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 boss was the CEO of HBO. So one day 
I decided I was going to go talk to the CEO of HBO. His name was Jeff Bukas. He later became the CEO of Time Warner. And about a year or two, he retired. So I'm on my way to talking to Jeff Bukas, CEO of HBO. And I had, you know, the, the IT, I was a, a programmer in the IT department. And the IT department, no one cared at all about the IT department at HBO. We were even in another building. Nobody cared about us. And so I'm walking over there between the buildings and I ran into a friend of mine who was one of the heads of marketing of HBO. And she said, where are you going? And I said, I'm talking, I'm gonna go to the CEO's office. I have this idea for Jeff Bukas. And she said, you can't, you can't just go to the CEO's office. What are you gonna to talk to him about? And I said, well, I have an idea for him to do shows on the web, the way they do shows on TV, kind of like cutting edge, innovative, sort of a little bit edgy kind of shows. And she says, you can't do that. Like, you're just a programmer. You're not gonna, he's not gonna listen to you. And it was, the, it was one of many times before and many times since up until the present day where people tell me you can't do something because of X, Y, or Z. And sometimes they have good intentions. They don't want you to make a fool of yourself. They don't want you to get fired or whatever. Uh, or they want you to keep your expectations realistic because maybe you can't do something. If I said, oh, I'm gonna be you know, a leading scorer in the NBA next year, if someone told me you can't do that, they would be right. But still, what's wrong with me trying? Usually when someone tells you you can't do something, it's because they can't do it and they don't want you to succeed where maybe they have not even tried or where they have tried and failed. And again, they might not have malicious intent, but you can't, you can't listen to the people. In fact, the, the, the path to can is usually filled with can'ts. So I kept on going to Jeff's office and... I walk into his office and he looks up and he says, who are you? And I said, well, I'm building HBO.com and I think HBO should do shows like on the, uh, you know, web shows. And I had an idea for a particular web show. And he's like, I don't care, just do it. It's your generation. I was young then, it's your generation, just do it. And so I went back to my boss and I said, Jeff Bukas said I should do this. And he said, what? And I said, I can't, you know, I ran into him and I told him this idea and he said, I should do it. So now suddenly I had this idea, I called it 3 a.m. where I would interview people at three in the morning in the streets of New York City on a Tuesday night, not a Saturday night because everybody was out at three in the morning on a Saturday night or a Friday night. But on a Tuesday night, why would you be out? You're either working the next day or a student, like how could you be out at three in the morning? So I had this feeling that it would be interesting stories at three in the morning. So I did this for two and a half years where every Tuesday or Wednesday night, I went out at three in the morning with a camera crew and we would record the interviews and I would just interview random people I came across. So I interviewed prostitutes, drug dealers, pimps. One time I went on the bus that goes back and forth between, um, Queens, New York, and Rikers Island, which is a jail. And I would just interview everybody on the bus. Another time, uh, I don't know, just I had so many stories. I basically turned over every rock in New York City in, between 1996 and 1999, say. And 
It was a real great experience. HBO even gave me money to shoot it as a pilot, and we had a really fun experience shooting it as a pilot. But I interviewed, I interviewed about 20 people a week, and I took the four best each week. I transcribed the interview interviews and had designers design around it. And you can find it still on archive.org somewhere if you search hbo.com. And uh, uh, it was really fun. I probably interviewed, well, what's 20 people times? Uh, I, I did, went out about 120 weeks. So, so almost like 3,000 people I interviewed during this time. And I was really nervous at first, like going up to people at three in the morning. Like one time, this couple was arguing with each other. And I went up to them and I said, what are you guys arguing about? And they started chasing me. So HBO for a while wanted me to have a bodyguard go with, with me on these interviews. And so one time I was in this one uh, bar doing interviews. I was secretly doing interviews. And it was a kind of a, let's call it a transgender bar. And people like, you know, husbands from the suburbs were in this bar picking up transgender prostitutes. And I was asking them, why are you doing this? And I don't know, the answers were interesting, but I remember the, uh, I don't know what you call it, the security in this bar found out what I was doing and they started chasing me. And the bodyguard was like three blocks ahead of me by the time we stopped running. So that didn't really work at all. It was an interesting insight into private security. But uh, I did that for a while, and it was really fun. It was fun doing interviews and then fun writing stories around those interviews. And so anyway, other companies came to me at this point and said, hey, can you do for us what you did for HBO, kind of an exciting sort of website? And at that time, no one knew that the internet was going to be this e-commerce you know, behemoth, like that's really the, the main purpose of, of the internet right now is either e-commerce or marketing. And so uh, I really thought of the, of the web then as like this artistic medium where you should do shows and you should like do interesting things with hypertext and links and so on. So uh, just on the side, while I was a full-time employee at HBO, I was making, let me see, I was making 40,000 a year was my salary and I thought I was rich at HBO. And I, and in New York City, I could tell you, you I couldn't even, you, there's, there was no apartments for rent even then. I couldn't afford anything. I was sleeping on people's couches. And, uh, but meanwhile, I, I started, all these companies started asking me to do their websites because nobody knew how to do websites back then. I remember American Express asked their accounting firm to do their website. The accounting firm asked a huge ad agency. The huge ad agency asked a consulting firm and the consulting firm asked me if I knew how to make a website. And so I said, sure. So I got my brother-in-law, who was a designer, and myself, I was on the software side, and we made their website. And I had never had a single dollar in my bank account in my life. And I was making 40000 a year. American Express paid us $250,000 to do this website. And then we did timewarner.com. Then we did conedison.com. We did dozens of websites. And we started hiring people. We We built a company and uh, you know, we ended up with about 30 or 40 employees and millions of dollars in revenues. I had left HBO by this time and we sold the company and I made a lot of money, but unfortunately, I didn't really know anything about money. There's, there's three skills to money, making it, keeping it, growing it. So 
I, I didn't even really know any of the skills. Like I made it because of a fluke. Like the internet was this fluke at the time. And I certainly didn't know how to keep it or grow it. So I kind of went broke really quickly. But before I went broke, I bought an expensive apartment to live in and did all sorts of other expensive things and made a lot of bad investments. Uh, you know, I can't even describe some of the investments, but they were all bad. And I lost everything. I lost all my money, millions and millions of dollars. And I got really, really, I was losing my house too. Uh, the IRS was after me and I don't know. I didn't have, I had two small babies. I didn't know how I was going to pay for them. I had no opportunities. The internet was busted happened. So there was, everybody thought the internet was a fad. So I didn't even have any internet opportunities. I was just really depressed because I couldn't even sell this house. I lived one block away from ground zero, uh, 9-11. And, you know, I, I was going broke because I, I, not only did I not have any money, but I owed the IRS and I couldn't pay my mortgage. So my house was going to get taken and everybody, I, you know, everybody who was your friend on the way up is no longer your friend on the way down. So I didn't even really have any opportunities or networks or anything. And so one time I was taking a walk and I saw this restaurant supplies store and I went in and I saw this box of waiters pads for uh, uh, $10. I had a hundred waiters pads, so 10 cents a pad. And so I bought the waiters pads and the next day, I started writing down 10 ideas a day. So every day, 10 ideas a day. I remember my first list of 10 ideas a day was a a book idea, like 10. So the book idea was called um, Beat Your Friends and Family at Every Game in the Universe. And so my first idea list was 10 games where I could figure out the tricks needed to win those games and I would write a book about it. So for instance, Scrabble, if you know all the two letter words, like uh, ZA or XI or XU or uh, QI, um, you would you would win at Scrabble. You'd be ba- basically your friends and family at Scrabble. Monopoly, if you own the orange properties and focus on that, you're going to win at Monopoly because uh, if you know Monopoly, jail is the most is the square you're on most of the. The square is the jail is the square you're most likely to land on because you could get there from the dice or the community chest or the go to jail um, square. And then seven is the most likely dice roll, which puts you right in the middle of the orange properties. So you should own all the orange properties and charge a lot of rent, build hotels and so on. So anyway, I had that was my first idea list. And every day I would write 10 ideas, 10 ideas. Did I have any good ideas? Probably not. But I found that I was exercising this idea muscle. I I didn't realize you had to exercise your creativity, but it turns out creativity is a muscle. It doesn't just strike you like lightning and it doesn't come from talent. You have to exercise it every day. And uh, suddenly with all these neurons connecting, like, oh, I'll connect my interest in writing with my interest in games. I'll connect my interest in investing with my interest in software. I'll connect all these different ideas up. I started... uh, feeling really excited about these ideas that I could potentially work on. And then I started writing ideas for other people. Like I wrote a list to one writer, here's 10 ideas for articles you should write. And he wrote back to me and he said, this is great. Why don't you write these articles for me? So I started writing for Jim Cramer's website, thestreet.com about finance. 
And then I wrote to this one hedge fund manager, here's 10 ideas for hedge fund strategies you should do. And he said, this is great. How about I allocate money to you and you do them? So I started a hedge fund and more and more things started happening. And eventually it lifted me out of my depression and I had opportunities and, and new career possibilities. And so I kept building up from that. I always wrote 10 ideas a day. Uh, one day, many years later, I wrote 10 ideas for a website I wanted to create about financial news. So I built that. It was called Stock Picker. I sold that. I went broke again because I still hadn't uh, learned the skill of keeping it. And uh, I had to start from scratch again and very depressed again. And I lost my house again. And I started, I kept doing the 10 ideas a day, 10 ideas a day. And eventually that led to more opportunities and more connections. I wrote 10 ideas for Google. I wrote 10 ideas for Amazon. They both asked me to come out and visit and consult with them. I wrote 10 ideas for LinkedIn, 10 ideas for Quora, uh, all the way up to the current day. I remember um, I had this podcast guest, Charlemagne the God. He's a radio host in, in New York City. Uh, it's got millions of people in his audience. And he had interviewed Joe Biden. And I had watched it. And I remember Joe Biden said to him, if you haven't decided who you're going to vote for, then you ain't black. And Charlemagne said, but we have questions. So I wrote Charlemagne my list that day. It was 10 questions Charlemagne could have asked Joe Biden. And I said, Charlemagne, you should make this into a book. You don't need to respond. Just, um, you know, if, you want, if you're interested, just steal this idea. You always want people to steal your ideas because how are you going to execute on all your ideas? Share the wealth. And ideas are a true currency. Ideas are like the currency of the, the 21st century. So... Charlemagne said, this is just a year ago. Charlemagne said, well, why don't you help me write the book? And so we wrote this together and uh, uh, it became a best-selling book on Audible. It was an Audible original. So opportunities happen all the time because of me writing these idealists. And ultimately, I, you know, back in 2012, 2013, writing these idealists led to this book I wrote called Choose Yourself. And the book sold very well. A lot of people liked it. It was about how I kind of dug out of the hole I kept putting myself in and how I came back and, and survived and survived enough to feed my family and, and create opportunities for myself. And this one guy liked it enough. He flew up to New York and he said, how about you do a podcast and we'll produce the whole thing? I didn't know anything about producing a po podcast. And so I said, no. And we kept in touch. And eventually, though, I realized, oh, like I said earlier, this is a great way to call up people that I admire. And so I started doing the podcast, and it was back in December 2013 I started. And I started interviewing some, you know, there weren't a lot of podcasts back then, so I had on some great guests. I had on, and they, the people who were producing my podcast, they thought I was just going to have, like, financial people and investors and hedge fund managers. And maybe I should have stuck with a niche like that, but I really wanted to talk to everybody that I ever wanted to talk to. So some of my guests have been Gary Kasparov, who's the former world chess champion, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who's the best basketball player in history, Danica Patrick, um, the best female car racer in history. Uh, Wayne Dyer was on the podcast, Tim Ferriss, uh, so many, so many great people, a bunch of congressmen, governors, uh, politicians, 
uh, writers, all my favorite writers have been on my podcast. And, and it's such a pleasure. And again, why do they go on a podcast? Well, several reasons. One is they want to promote something. So uh, I always look for who's publishing a book in the next six months. And then I'll write to every single one of them. Hey, I've had it on so-and-so, so-and-so, and so-and-so. And uh, I see you're uh, having a book come out. Why don't you come on my podcast and we'll talk about it. And a lot of, you know, and I always list people who have been New York Times bestsellers that have been on my podcast. So they see, oh, it's a, it's a good crowd to, to be in the same group as. Oh, people who've been on James Alvager's podcast. So I don't know if anybody actually increases any book sales by being on my podcast, but maybe they do, maybe they don't, I don't know. But again, I get to interview like all these people who I've admired since I was a little kid. Like, uh, you know, I play chess for instance, so having the best chess player in world history on my podcast was such a, a treat. Or, you know, I like to write. So having, you know, great writers, whether they're Tim O'Brien, author of a really beautiful short story collection, The Things They Carried, or um, uh, uh, Ken Fowle, who's who sold 150 million copies of his thrillers. Uh, so I've had on great writers. I've had on great hedge fund managers like Ray Dalio, who runs the largest hedge fund in the world, or Steve Schwartzman, who runs the largest private equity firm in the world. I've had on Peter Thiel, who's one of the best entrepreneurs and venture capitalists out there. And again, all of it comes from, I really credit everything from this practice I do of writing 10 ideas a day. And it's such a simple practice to do. It takes 20 minutes uh, to do every single day. And it's been, it's created so many opportunities for me. It's changed my life in, in so many different ways. And even now to this day, I write, here's 10 guests I should have on, or here's 10 questions I would ask each guest, or here's, uh, uh, you know, the other day I, I wrote an idea for, you know, what if I made a piece of software to keep track of all of my ideas? So here's 10 features that that would have. Uh, and I might implement that and, and launch that soon. We'll see. And whenever I, ha I wrote a, a book last year called Skip the Line, which was about how Everybody always tells me, oh no, you need, if you want, you can't go from being a hedge fund manager to a, a stand up comedian. That's crazy. Well, I would write, uh, you know, again, I would write 10 ideas for things I need to learn if I wanted to be a comedian or a chess player or uh, an entrepreneur. And, but everybody said, oh no, you need the 10,000 hours. If you switch careers, you need to put in, the, there's the 10,000 hour rule. Yeah, I have to put in 10,000 hours to be good at something. And I figured this is BS. Um, what if you're 40 years old, 50 years old, 60 years old? You mean you can change interests and, and do something you love and monetize it? So I wrote a book, Skip the Line, about how I've switched careers over 10 times and always had to figure out how to get good at something and how to monetize it. And I wrote about something I call the 10,000 experiments rule. So instead of just doing 10,000 hours, it's better to do experiments. Like for instance, one time, well, when I made the website Stock Picker, that was just an experiment. What if I allow people to um, enter their portfolios into a website and they, everybody can compare and comment on each other's portfolios? Well, that got, a mil it was, I launched it very cheaply, less than $2,000 it cost me to build it, launched it and had over a million users 
the first month. So it was an experiment that worked. Most of my experiments fail miserably, but they turn into good stories. Like one time, I remember there was one time uh, Trump tweeted how he wanted to buy Greenland. And the prime minister of Denmark tweeted, it's not for sale. And I'm like, what the heck is this? Like, I didn't know, A, you could buy a country. And what does Denmark have to do with Greenland? And why would, why would they tweet? Was this a tweeting negotiation? So I did some research and I, 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 I realized, oh, there are reasons to buy Greenland. So I made an idea. Let's 10 reasons one should buy Greenland. So here's an experiment I did. I started a Kickstarter uh, to, so that I could buy Greenland. And I was going to try to raise $100 million uh, to, to start off. Greenland, I think, would cost much more. And Kickstarter shut me down instantly. But Indiegogo let me, I think it was Indiegogo, uh, or maybe it was GoFundMe. One of them let me run the campaign for a while. And it was an interesting experiment about writing. I was using the structure of a Kickstarter to write down the reasons why I would buy, why I would want to buy Greenland instead of letting kind of a, a president or a prime minister buy it. And uh, it was a fun experiment. It failed because I didn't buy Greenland, but it was an interesting story. And I learned how to do a Kickstarter. I'd never done a Kickstarter before. So experiments have huge upside and very little downside. And every podcast I do, I try to experiment with things. Like maybe I'll interview somebody uh, and you know I'll try different interview styles or, or, or maybe I won't have anybody on at all and I'll start a new series. Like uh, I started a series called I Was Wrong and I talk, talk about all these issues that I've written about in the past and maybe I've been wrong about some of those issues. And that turned out to be really popular. I did, I did one about housing, owning a home. Uh, I was wrong, colon, you know, housing. Or another one I'm about to do is I was wrong about going, sending kids to college, which I always wrote articles. I would never send my kids to college. And unfortunately, two or three of my kids went to college against my, against the advice of their father. But maybe I was wrong, maybe not. About to do an episode on that. So I'm always experimenting with different formats and uh, always experimenting with new types of guests or new ways to uh, talk to the guests. Uh, there's one guest, we decided to do a little mini series called Good or Bad, where we talk about very topical things and discuss whether they're good or bad for society. And so that's about to launch. And so 1,500 podcasts later or more, I've been doing this for eight years, about 150 podcasts a year. So a little, it's so about 1,200 podcasts. And always trying to find new ways to reinvent it because otherwise you'll get bored. If it's not, I find it's not worth doing something. You know, it's, it, it, this is, doing a podcast is not a longevity race. It's not like who does it for the longest or who does the most uh, podcast or even who has the most downloads. You do a podcast because it changes you as a person and it makes you a better person. I've had on 1,200 great guests and I've learned from every single one of them. And I don't always remember everything I've learned, but I try to remember at least one thing from each one of them that I could implement in my life. And uh, it's been a great experience. This is a little bit of the story of how I've skipped the line towards podcasting, but I hope it's been helpful. And thanks very much, uh, Alex Sanfilippo, for inviting me to come to this. 
And if anyone wants to contact me, I'm, I'm at Jay Altucher on Twitter, and I try to respond to tweets. And thanks very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Podcasting Made Simple. If you enjoyed what you just heard, please share a screenshot or picture of yourself listening to it on social media. Be sure to tag us so we can follow you and also reshare it. Additionally, if you know someone who would benefit from listening to this as well, please send it their way. For show notes and resources from this episode, please visit podpros.com slash 171. Thank you again for listening and I'm looking forward to bringing you another masterclass episode next week.